Will you welcome Jeff Strickland? Because he is doing a great job, so there's nothing really to criticize or correct. Uh, here sometimes uh, when a new guy, you know, comes in, and, you know, remember when I first came in, somebody came and said, I think we should have plurality of elders. And I said, okay, that's good. I said, I can't do that for you. I don't, I don't know how to do that. And so I'll leave and you can do that if you wanted to. So they, they didn't like that idea and they said, uh, we think we should have co-pastors. I said, well, um, I can't do that. I'm willing to leave, but I'm, I'm, I can't do that. Uh, they would just kind of look at me and said, listen, a leader has his gifts and uh, he has something that God wants him to do. And I get this, with, and I want to be very careful because I get this with Peter and Tamara. God has a mission for them. I would not want to interrupt it. And uh, so the last thing I want to do, I, like, they're just a wonderful spirit in the worship area. I was kind of looking around. There you are, you know, raising your hands. He was telling me that, you know, he wants to hear voices in the church. Honestly, I have not heard voices really in uh, the congregation like I've heard it here since the time I was a little boy. And uh, it is a beautiful sound. What is going on here, uh, you know, things will adjust and, you know, change over time. That just happens because God leads us and makes things more clear. But if I were you, and like, like if you're not a part of this church, jump in, unless you're me and, and, and uh, Jennifer Neuschwander, because we got to go back to our church as we pass. But just stay here, You've, like you found home. No, no, no. And if you are here, uh, get deeply committed. This is Peter and his wife, Tamara, they are excellent people. They deeply love Jesus. They deeply care about the church. So I'm, I'm real sensitive to be careful what I say, because I don't want to injure that. And I do think that the church of the future needs to look different than the church of the past. Stadium church, famed preachers, all of that thing, 20, 30 years from now, probably that will be non-existent except in churches that do not matter. I, th I think that. And uh, Peter is, and his wife are trying to do something quite unique. In the middle of all this, they're just trying to say, Jesus, would you talk to us and could we obey? And I think that should be applauded. I love that kind of courage. I love that about Peter and his wife deeply. Thinking, coming in this morning uh, outside of Manor House, City Bible, Bible Temple, Deliverance Temple, had a few names uh, outside of that church, I just realized I probably have come over here more than any other place. Love. Bob and Sue, they are wonderful leaders, great people. I remember when you dedicated the building, I sat kind of right back here, and then Bob would host things, and I'd come over, and I'd come over and see Bob, and then would come here and speak uh, at times. I just realized that, and it, it just kind of hit me, of all the places I've been, this track coming in between, you know, my home in Vancouver, I've made quite a bit, and it's just an honor to be with you today, and know some of you, Bill Scheidler, of course, is the reason that I'm in the ministry, and some people applaud him. Others would like to end his ministry now for having done that. But uh, <laughs> anyway, he's here, he and his wife, and love you very much, Bill, and all you meant to us and mean to us. Uh, I'll just say this, and then we're going to get going. I am an acquired taste. Some of you will not like me. If you'll come back to church tonight, you will, because I'll bring my wife, and you'll love her, and as well. Okay, <laughs> at least she saves him. So just know this, I'm kind of acquired taste. Um, I try to be careful with the things I say. Uh, sometimes I, they, they slip out, so I'm, I'm, I try to be aware of where I'm at. 
I don't go speak everywhere. I have 21 names. I would only go to those churches. I Like, I am a pastor. Somebody said, I bet you they miss you at home this morning. No, I miss them. I need them. Uh, there is something that they help me in my life with Jesus that I, I deeply need and I deeply appreciate. So here we go. Jesus, help us. Jesus, move. Jesus, do among us what you want to do uh, among us. I pray, Lord Jesus, in some way you would use these words in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of today would be called The Way of Lectio. Lectio just in Latin means reading. You say, why would you use that word? You're trying to impress us with big words. Not at all. But I want, I'd like to maybe make a shift in just your thinking. I don't read scripture, I lectio it. And then what I want to do is go through that. And sometimes if you just change the name of something, sometimes it can help you. So I read all kinds of books. I lectio scripture. I lectio it uh, all that I can. Um, I, we sing the song, all my life you have been faithful. Uh, I, you know, or it's, you know, really a, a different title, but you know how it goes. All my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. And then I rise up from that song and I go home and I complain. Sometimes the complaints about my life are more numerous than my comments about the goodness of God. C can I just say something about worship? Worship anoints what you've been doing all week. It empowers what you've been doing all week. Woe to me if I've created a wrong Jesus that I come to church and worship on Sunday morning. Because that Jesus will be empowered. If I've created a Jesus that allows me to do certain selfish things and to hide certain selfish things, that gets anointed and strengthened in my life. The formation of worship is really, really powerful, but what, when we're coming in, and, and things are going on here now, it's not like formation is, as I'm spending time with Jesus every day and every morning. The formation that happens is basically you know, God himself, the Holy Spirit himself, comes and seals the Jesus you're worshiping. And it is possible to create another Jesus. I've done it. It's possible to create another Jesus and worship him. But woe to us, because that Jesus that we've anointed, that Jesus will be kind of strengthened and formed in us. So what we want to do is we want to get the Jesus of the Scripture formed. Had a pastor's wife recently tell me the story about she got some disease when she uh, was pregnant. And it was incredibly painful. She went through just all that she went through, vomiting, diarrhea, pain, bent over kind of pain. It, in fact, I wouldn't describe it all to you because it was just, at times I would just tense up when she would tell me. It was just horrible. They gave her all kinds of, from painkillers, she's pregnant, from all kinds of painkillers to all kinds of steroids they put her on. And she is going absolutely mad. And it's not helping the pain. And her husband is watching because he's giving her the stuff that she's supposed to be taking because she has to take so much of it. And he says, I think the drugs are making her worse. And the doctor will not listen to her. She's getting in this generation. That's kind of what happens. It's very connected with drugs because the spirit of this lays across her land. She had this deeply suicidal thought within her. She wanted to take her life. Her story just goes and goes and goes. And then when she's telling me the story, she says, and then it got worse. I mean, I just almost wanted to faint right there. How could it get worse? Ends up this way. She asks her husband. She has, she has, she's having a moment of deep pain, but enough clarity. She wants to take her life. And so she asks, can I go buy a toy for somebody that was in their church? And 
he says yes, and so she wants to go to this certain toy shop, and they pull up there, and he gets out of the car to go in with her, and she says, no, please, I'm feeling well enough. Let me do one thing by myself. And they're standing above the car over the hoods talking about it. Not a big argument, but talking about it. Somebody in a nearby uh, beauty parlor is looking at them tell this story. And they said, I think they're having a fight. We better call the police. And so they call the police on them. Eventually, he acquiesces, lets her go into the toy store. And she goes in the toy store, and she starts looking for the back entrance. Some lady asks, what are you doing? She says, I'm looking for a back entrance. She says, my boyfriend is trying to hurt me out in the car. And so they show her the back door, and she goes out the back door, runs down the alley, and comes into a gun shop. The gun shop, she's never held a gun in her hand. She's never shot a gun before. But she is tired and sick, and she's in this incredible madness. And she goes in there, and she buys a 38. She's in there buying the 38. She actually puts a bullet in the gun. And uh, the guy's just finishing up the, the cell, and finally the gun is hurt, and he hears this click, click. And she thought, she didn't know about gun, she thought she had the bullet in the chamber, she didn't. He looked at her and said, what are you doing? She says, oh, nothing, nothing. I, I, I know what I'm doing. She didn't understand what was going on. She goes outside. When she goes outside, he immediately calls the police. So you have the police being called. They're just saying something that in the beauty salon, that just seemed like an argument. What's going on? Now the police are being called in the, uh, in the gun shop. She goes out and she sits on a curb and she starts loading every single chamber and uh, gets the gun all ready to go and she holds it up to her head. She'd never held, never shot a gun in her life. Across the street, somebody was looking at what she was doing, immediately calls 911, and then starts moving across the street. She pulls the trigger. When she pulls the trigger, it was so difficult to pull it. This is all that they can imagine. When she's pulling the trigger, comes down on it because she's jerking it real hard. It jerks the gun over, and the bullet comes in like in through her artery and out through the back of her head. Bang, she's down. Husband hears the gunshot and he goes running in the toy store because he just now he's curious where his wife is at, has no idea. She has just shot herself there on the curb. About the moment she shot herself, here the police are showing up, they're waving guns at everybody. The guy, the guy you know, come across the street, he's holding the gun and moving towards the police. And why he didn't get shot was only for one reason, because a little bit earlier that day, some squirrels got in some electric panels in Tulsa and was taking all the police to go down there and direct tra traffic and handle things. So what happened was a, a captain and a sergeant, both of them Christians, showed up, had been in these kind of situations a lot, and they just decided not to shoot a guy that was moving towards them with a gun. Finally, he gives them a gun, and then here comes the husband, and all they had known that they got a report that there was some kind of abusive boyfriend, and they've got guns pointed, and they're saying, stop, stop, and he won't stop. He just keeps moving towards them. Their guess is that it had been younger police or anything like that. Somebody else would have been shot that day. It just did not happen. One of these guys, when he's headed out of the room, both these guys that showed up for the, uh, showed up for the, the call, uh, both of them were Christians, one of them running out of the room. There, he said there was a whole room stashed full of all kinds of stuff. He said, I'm going by it, and it's just like the Holy Spirit says, go get the sterilized blankets. So he went and got two sterilized blankets and threw them in his trunk. And there he is with those blankets and applying pressure to this gal, and he's trying to just keep her alive while the paramedics get there. They haul her off to the hospital. The surgeon is there who later will say this. 
You know how surgeons are, there's very few of them that are really good, and so when they're really, really good, they let you know, and they said probably only four or five people would have been able to save your life, and I'm one of them. I'm really, really, really good. This, this, was, this was told to her years later, years later when they happen to go, because she's not going to get pregnant again, when she happens to go, her and her husband go, and they want to adopt a baby, and there he is in that room. They brought him in from somewhere, and he's giving kind of a, you know, it's really a great thing to uh, adopt babies kind of speech, and they looked in his eyes, and his husband said, those eyes are so familiar, and recognized his eyes from doing all that surgery. And here he said, you know, had I not been there, she would have probably been dead. He said, I'm even glad to hear she's alive because once I work on them, they go on and I never hear any more about them. Thank you for telling me. She had, and I'm just glossing over the story, she had, she had moment after moment after moment during the story where God was doing things to keep her alive. Had that first call not come out to police, had the police that had showed up not showed up, had all kinds of things happened in that moment. She would have died, but she didn't. So she writes this poem, and this will give you some background. Where, you, where, where were you when the panic attack struck at 2 a.m.? Title of the poem, Where Were You? Where were you when the IV pricks took 15 times to find a vein? Where were you when AIDS accused my hyperemesis to be my bulimia. Where were you when the call button didn't work? Where were you when I was laying in my vomit with no one to help me? Where were you when I couldn't swallow my saliva without spinning it up? Where were you when I lost my job at the Alzheimer's clinic? She was actually a, an accredited and a, an award, uh, awarded uh, and an honored person when it came to Alzheimer's treatment. She had her master's in that. Where were you when I couldn't bathe myself? Where were you when the doctor suggested that I needed to abort my baby? Where were you when I tried to use prescriptions as an overdose to get out of this life? And she just goes on and on and on with that. Then, just give you a taste of this. Here's the second part of the poem. I was in the midnight banana bread. I was in the dozen tulips. I was in the foot massage. I was in the doctor who came and finally treated you, figured out the mess you were in. See what happened when she had shot herself? All those drugs washed out of her system, and overnight she was normal. I was a pastor who came and prayed for you at 3 a.m. I was a free housekeeping the church provided for you. I was in the music. People from your church played all day and all night long in your room while you're recovering. She goes on and on and on with this. It's a, it's a very long poem. In fact, when I read it, as soon as she told me the story, I just started weeping through it. In your worst nightmare, God is still good. We can sing that song one way to therapeutically make ourselves feel emotionally good in a service. Or we can sing that song with our memories going absolutely nuts remembering everywhere God has been good. I cannot help you if you would believe that God would raise his hand to you and strike you and even throw you in hell. I can't help you very much. So, well, don't you believe in hell? Don't you think people go to hell? I sure do. I do believe this. I do believe God lets us 
experience the consequence of our own crazy evil and sin. And so I think, yeah, he allows us to make that determination and throw ourselves. But he takes responsibility for it because he's still the first cause. But you got to know this. Whenever God is reaching out his hand to touch you, he is loving you. He is good. He's wanting to, he's wanting to increase life and liveliness in you. He is a good God all the time. And yet there is rampant evil in, a, in the world. There's rampant evil in us. And so God wants to talk to us. He wants to communicate with us. <laughs> he wants to reveal who he really is. So I do this thing at church. It's just called Let's Talk. And I want to talk about three things. I want to talk about the prophetic and the Holy Spirit. I want to talk about the person of the Holy Spirit. And then I want to talk about the power of the Holy Spirit. Just these three things. First two points we'll go through rapidly. Last one we'll camp on just for the last few minutes. The prophetic and the Holy Spirit. It goes something like this. Jewish perspective of the Holy Spirit was a prophetic view. When the Holy Spirit was present, he would speak and he would reveal. When the Holy Spirit was not present, there would be no voice. So you have... Israel going all the way up to having been taken into captivity. Israel as a nation was taken into captivity in Babylon, and there they were. And God promised them prophetically, I'm going to take you there, but I'm going to bring you back out. And so he does. He takes them to Babylon, and then he brings them back out. And the prophetic word during this time is still alive. It's alive all the way through to the last prophet, Malachi. And when Malachi goes and he prophesies, the, the whole prophetic thing leaves. Now, Jesus was living in the Tana, uh, I'm forgetting how to say the word, but he's living in the days in which the oral traditions were being written. And even the Jewish fathers then were declaring that the writing of the Jewish traditions, it was not the voice of God. It was not the prophetic voice of God they were writing down. They would even admit this. It was the bath coal. It was the, it was the echo of the voice. So if I were to take oil and I were to pour it on the rock, they'd say, you would not hear anything because you're getting the real thing. If you were to take water and pour it on the rock, you would hear the, you'd know that the water is hitting because you would hear the echo of it. When the Holy Spirit is present, here's what happens. You have the prophetic that is absolutely moving. You have the prophetic that's engaged. And so when the, when the prophetic came back to earth, that would mean at the, excuse me, when the Holy Spirit came back to earth and in the way that he kind of was and even in a bigger way he was in the Old Testament, they thought that what would happen again is the voice of God would be restored to the earth. And they thought, Jewish people thought that's going to happen at the end time in the eschaton. It was going to happen then. But it didn't. What ends up happening is John the Baptist arrives. John the Baptist, actually some people would say like, like he was the last of the Old Testament prophets. I don't know if he really had a prophetic voice. I don't know if he was still operating out of the echo. But we do know this for sure. He said, I'm a voice. I'm the voice of the one telling you that the voice is coming. The earth kind of stands still for a minute because we have a voice that is arriving on the earth that is going to change everything. He returns, and he's, there he is in the waters of baptism. He's in the waters of baptism on that day. All of a sudden, after all of these years, that voice begins to break open. The Holy Spirit descends on him, and the heavens begin to open, and he declares simply this, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. 
When people come up out of the waters, we echo that over them and saying, this was said over Jesus, and because now you're becoming a part of his body, this is true of you. You're his beloved son, you're his beloved daughter, in whom he is well pleased. Thank God for that voice that re-enters the world. Thank God for that voice with that redemptive sound that enters and calls us to come back to him. At transfiguration, the voice is heard once again. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Hebrews says, long time ago, God spoke through the prophets. In these days, he's going to speak through Jesus. When the Holy Spirit returns to his church, the voice of God comes alive. The prophetic voice comes alive. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I'm aware as we're being prophetic this week, I'm aware of this. I'm aware that prophecy is, is Jesus giving witness to what he's doing in somebody's life. I'm trying to hear his witness. I'm trying to hear his testimony. This is what I'm doing, Jess. See this. Hear this. This is what I'm doing. Say this because this is what I'm doing in their life. The fact that the prophetic voices return to some degree is telling us that the Holy Spirit is here and present. In other words, in the Jewish mind, the voice of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit were tangibly connected. You couldn't break the two apart. Another place, right before his passion, Jesus said, I have already brought glory to my name, I'll do so again. And I suppose you could say, you know, at his baptism, God brought glory to his name, and then Jesus, he went and spoke for the Father. I suppose you could say that, and, and that would be certainly a, a right way to handle the Scripture. But I like to go all the way back to creation. Spirit of God hovering over the face of the earth. If the Spirit of God is present, what are you going to have? You're going to have the voice of God present too, and what begins to happen? Let there be light, let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be. The voice of God starts moving into the earth. See, what he wants to do is he wants to give you and me that voice. He wants us to speak prophetically. The Jesus we worship is very, very important. Can't be another Jesus, it has to be King Jesus. The Jesus, the Son of God Jesus. The Jesus that is seated on the throne today. And so I think when he's saying, listen, I've glorified my name, I'll do it again, I think simply he's saying, listen, you've heard the voice of creation and everything I did in the voice of creation, it was good, 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 good. Now, listen to the voice of redemption and every redeemed soul, good, 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 good. All of you have had things happen in your life that have been evil and damaging and hurting and all of that. Every single one of you have experienced that in the midst of it all, God has been good in everything. And what happens to us as we receive the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden he begins to reveal to us where he's been. And this revealing, in my mind, is incredibly important. The Jesus, is, the Jesus truth is simply this. When the Holy Spirit returns to his temple, and his temple happens to be the body of Jesus Christ, the voice his revealing of Jesus comes also. Now, let's turn to the person of the Holy Spirit. The person of the Holy Spirit. Before Jesus, the Holy Spirit often is just thought of as naked, raw power. That's how we think of him. In fact, when you and I think of power, we tend to think in kind of um, in, in, in that sense of, you know, if you don't mind me saying it, but 
kicking, demon casting out, red sea opening, dead body resurrecting. When we're singing power in the church, we're kind of getting it all like that. The power of the Holy Spirit is incredible. The power of the Holy Spirit is simply this. The Holy Spirit reveals, he reveals the voice, the thing that God is doing. Jesus said, I, what I see, what, what I hear the Father doing, that will I also do. What the Holy Spirit does is he reveals to us the things Jesus is saying and doing them, and then he puts that in our mouth, and we begin to speak it. Jesus is doing such and such. Here's the power of the Holy Spirit. Once his word comes out, I mean, if, if, you, if you miss this, you kind of miss all the other teachings of Jesus. The word comes out of our mouth, and it's sown, and a seed sown by God can only do one thing, grow and produce fruit. So I'd like to know what the superpower of God is. The superpower of God is to take a tiny little seed and plant it in the universe, and nothing can stop its force. When he tells Israel, I'm going to take you out of Egypt, nothing could stop the force of that word coming out over that nation's life. Nothing could stop it. There was something incredibly powerful wherever two or three are gathered in my name and pray. There was something incredibly powerful in that church that once that seed gets sown, nothing can stop it. So I just want to look at this just for a minute. I'm sure you've already heard this, but I just quickly I want to run through it. The, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of Jesus. And that, that seems like, well, that's kind of a simple thing. Why would that be important? I'll show you in just a minute. The, the, the spirit of Jesus, Luke tells us in Acts 16, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So the Holy Spirit and the spirit of Jesus is exactly the same spirit. It says this, Jesus said this about the same as Jesus, the spirit being the same as Jesus. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. If, if, I, if, I were to, if I were to ask for you, we're working on something, and I were to say, would you hand me a pair of pliers, and you slap a fried egg in my hand, that would not, that would not like be another, because it is, another means something different, but it also means of the same kind. If I gave you an address, and I said, go to my house, and you got there, and it was a big lake. He said, that was not what he's talking about. He's like, another, but it's also going to be of the same kind. If you said later today a man's going to come to your house and give you a wonderful gift and you hear the doorbell ringing and you open the door and a giraffe was standing outside, you would, you would have something completely different. When Jesus was saying, I'm going to send you another comforter, he's saying, I'm going to send you someone just like me, but different. And so this, this Holy Spirit that we look at, sometimes we see him in kind of a unique way. We see him as a raw power or a force or kind of, you know, something without a body. And that's okay to see him that way as long as you know that the Holy Spirit is, is the same Spirit as Jesus. And in fact, here's what he does. He tries to take the things that Jesus has said and the things that he hasn't said and he tries to reveal them to you. He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance everything that I've said to you. The Holy Spirit wants to bring to your mind the things that Jesus has said. This is what's important to him. The other thing it says, you will know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. He universalizes Jesus. Do you realize what this means? This morning when I got up and I went into my room and I lit my candles and I sat there just for a few moments and then I begin, our Father, art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, our Father, oh good God. When I'm, when I'm starting to pray that prayer, Jesus' presence is in that room. 
Jesus is in that room as real as if he was in a body sitting beside me. He's in the room. And what happens with a lot of us, we're not aware of how close that he really wants to be. And the Holy Spirit makes him close, makes him now. Something that happens in evangelical circles, we don't, we don't kind of settle our spirit down enough to be aware of the Holy Spirit. And then when you are aware of the Holy Spirit, you realize, man, I'm in the, I'm in the presence of Jesus himself. Sometimes, you know, the Holy Spirit will just kind of come upon me this way. This is kind of a silly thing. It won't sound very good how I'm doing it, but in the imagination of my own mind, when I'm in Jesus, he likes this. So I will sometimes just raise my hands. Praise Jesus. I praise you, Jesus. I praise you, Jesus. The Lamb of God, I praise you. Tell you, I start going off like that for a few moments, and I can sense Jesus in the room. It's almost like you could say, where'd you go, Holy Spirit? Well, I'm right here. What are you doing? I'm revealing the Son. I'm bringing the Son to you. The Son is here. And I think that's important because it's hard for me to bend my knee in that sense, to the Holy Spirit, although it would be very appropriate to do it. But when I say his name, and then when I'm alone, I say it this way because I really don't like the English name because, you know, it's, it's kind of like if you have somebody, if you have, a, if you have a, a person who is from Mexico and they have a Spanish name and you, you know, hi, Jacob. Well, it was always pronounced, you know, a Kobe or Kobe, however they'd say it. It's probably better, if, if, I probably butchered that name as it is, but it's probably, if they're really your friend, it's probably better to call them by their name, the way their name is announced. So we say Jesus because we like this English version of it, but sometimes I just kind of clear that away because I want to say it at least as close as I can get to the way they were saying it when Jesus was alive, Yeshua, Yeshua, I love you. And when I'm saying that, I realize that he's Messiah, he's king. He's wanting me to bend my knee. The Holy Spirit motivates me to bend my knee to Jesus. And then I would say this, that the Holy Spirit is the voice of Jesus himself. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit is moving among you, you will begin to prophesy. He says, I... I, you know, desire all the gifts, but especially that you would have the language of the Holy Spirit in you. You know, you'll come here and you'll listen to us prophesy, and every once in a while we'll, you know, maybe throw out of us, say it the Lord. I was in a coffee shop one time, and a guy's sitting there, and he's reading Thomas Merton. I said, oh, I see you reading Thomas Merton. So I just asked him, see, you're reading Thomas Merton, are you a believer? Thomas Merton would be one of the, you know, the great mystical thinkers. We don't have a lot of them in America, but he would be a great one. And he says, well, he says, I, I'm not a believer. I want you to know that. I said, well, that, that's good. Why are you reading Thomas Merton? And that confuses me. So, well, he says, I'm very interested in the canon, and some people think that it's inspired and inerrant. And he says, and I don't. Do you? I said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, it's, I think it's inspired and inerrant, but not for the reasons you think I think that. And so he says, 
He says, and then he starts going through all the doctrines that are all contradictory in Scripture. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of listening. I said, I get it, I get it, I get it. But that's not why, I, like, I don't think that, that's what the Bible does. He says, well, what do you think the Bible does? And then I go in on him. I say, I think the Bible tells a story. I think the Bible tells a story about Israel and how Jesus fulfilled in Israel something that God longs to do, and that is to save people like you and me. And I said, in that story, I said, you have the wonderful outworking of God and ultimately its conclusion in Jesus and how he's out to redeem the world because the world is so massively full of evil and hatred and, you know, it's going on and on like this. So I said, I think it's an inspired and inerrant story. So I don't even argue over the doctrines. I get all those contradictions in there. I see, and I, I, I've read enough to know exactly what you're talking about, but the story, what a story. And I went in greater detail with him. And he just kind of pops back and he says, he says, whoa. He says, do, he says, do any Christians that you know talk like this? I said, yeah, there's quite a few of us now that talk like this. And then I said this, and, and it wouldn't seem like, but I'm prophesying over, I said, I don't want you to be fitted at me, but you are a terrible atheist. He says, well, why do you say I'm a terrible atheist? I said, because you have an interest in whether or not the canon is inspired and inerrant. Your, your whole proposition is, is that it, it is not. Move on. If it's a piece of literature, move on. You're reading Thomas Merton. Move on. You're a terrible atheist. You're not representing well. And, you know, I'm exaggerating how I said that, but in essence, that's what I was saying. I did say this. You're not representing very well. And he just, he paused, he didn't know what to say, and he had to go. He said, would you talk to me some more? I said, I'll talk all day long on this stuff. <laughs> I said, if there's anyone I like talking to, it's an intellectual that is an atheist. Because I said, that is a debate I think I can win. So he left. We came back and talked some more. That wouldn't seem like prophecy to you. But I was flipping his world upside down really, really quick. If you're intellectual, you know, I've, I've read enough, I've kind of read the other side of things, so I understand the, the arguments a little bit, but more than that, I understand the heart. See, there was a, and that's what I told him, I said, there's a longing in you, you want to believe the story. But there's been a whole lot of rot in the church, and so you think just because the church has been rotten, the story isn't true. I said, Jesus isn't rotten. Okay. Make sense to you? Let's talk about the power of the Holy Spirit just quickly. I, I see it just simply this way, that if God is speaking, we need to listen. So I would just spend the last couple of minutes just talking about how to listen. Connection with the Holy Spirit is not assessed by human convention. I can't email him. I can't phone him. I can't follow him on social media. So communicating with him is different. You can't sit down and share a cup of coffee with him. So when the Holy Spirit talks to you, you have a brain, and he's going to use your mind, and he's going to use thoughts to connect with you. You will not hear from him any other way. If you're listening to him speak as I speak, it's because the Holy Spirit is kind of messing with your thoughts right now, and he's leading you somewhere and talking to you and everybody that's happening all over the room in different places. I cannot stress enough that the way that we do life in a secular world is not going to enable us to hear God's voice. And so I don't say when I talk about the Bible, I don't talk about reading it. 
I talk about lectia it. I know that word isn't proper grammar, but that's how I say it. It reminds me, move away from reading, move into lectia. This is God's word. It has a special story to tell, and boy, have I been digging on it for a long time. We go to the scripture. The Lord has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He's, he's given me the tongue of a disciple that I may know how to sustain the weary one with the word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear. And I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. The Lord has an ear in you that he wants to open. You are not pleased with sacrifices and offerings. I thought, God, if I do a good service, if I do something really hard, if I really break my back for something, will that count something with you? And then he says this, you have dug out two ears for me. The psalmist is saying, Eugene Peterson brings this out. He says, the Lord has taken a pickaxe and he is carving an ear out of my block head. And there's so much truth to that. He's wanting to carve in you an ear that can hear. You did not ask for burnt offerings or sacrifices for sin. Then I said, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll of the book. I am happy to do your will. Because we cannot do his will until he has dug out in us ears. Stood up in my pulpit one Sunday morning. Had two events in my pulpit that were not very much fun. One event was I stood up in my pulpit one Sunday morning and the Lord informed me, which was true, if you were not the pastor, you would not attend church here. And that was true. Because the church was a lot about me. So that went to unplugging everything. We were doing everything Megan in those days and all you can do to go. So first thing we did was unplug that. A few years later, then he really gets me. He says to me in a dream, he says, how many people do you think in your church hear my voice? And all of a sudden, I was standing in the pulpit in our building and it was packed with people. It was black. And lights come down and start lighting over people's heads. Couldn't tell anybody's face. They just came down and lit over people's heads. So hundreds of people in the building. And uh, lights come down, start landing on people's head. I would like to believe, if I'm exaggerating, there were 20 lights. There may have been 12. And then I felt like in the dream, I'm standing right there, and he penetrates right into my heart and said, this is your main job. I'm not satisfied with a lot of people being in an auditorium. I'm satisfied when my sheep hear my voice. And essentially said, you're a lousy shepherd because that is not important to you. Well, I got them to hear his voice. They knew all about tithing, that was for sure. They knew all about attendance. And they knew all about don't move to Texas. So those things we got in them really, really good. <laughs> So I had to learn, how, God, how do you make an ear out of somebody? So I looked into what's called Lectia Divina, which basically it just, it just is the ancient way, because here's what the, the ancients did. They said, 
hey, now we're not having the word spoken to us. We're reading it. We've, we've got to learn. How, how, did, how did God build an ear to listen to God? Don't worry about these words that's going to come up on the screen. It, here's what they did. They just said, we need to learn how to read Scripture, meditate on Scripture, pray, and contemplate. That's just what those four things are. And don't worry about those today. I'm just throwing them up there for people who want to know, like, what is that all about? Like the Divina, that's what it's all about. Uh, here, here's the problem. When Westerners get into this, they say, well, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to meditate. Excuse me. I'm going to re read, and then I'm going to meditate, and then I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to contemplate. I'm going to do this and this and this, and then, you know, box, 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 and they're all checked out. Then, then I did like the Divina. It's not really how it works. If you hear the voice of God, you will at some level practice all these. It's not something you do in order. It's something that the Holy Spirit just kind of builds in you. So what I want to do is I want to say this a little bit differently. I, if, if I could just do this. The Holy Spirit wants to help you hear his voice. I'm just going to give you four secrets to doing that. And in a sense, I'm going to say it in all of a different way, but I'm going to say these four things. So here we go. When you go to Scripture, you begin to learn the language of God, but you also, if the, with the Holy Spirit's help, you begin to learn the language of the soul, which most people don't ever get to because we're not, as, we're not as much human beings as we are beasts, living by our instincts or our impulses. But when you go to Scripture, you start learning to listen to the language of God and the language of the soul. So lectio reading of Scripture basically has the power to resurrect the voice of God. So as you're reading the Bible, the voice of God gets resurrected along with Ears that get resurrected because God is what? He's taking a pickaxe to your blockhead, my blockhead, and he's carving in us ears so we can hear. And so because we're made a certain way, we listen a certain way. So first thing I say, the Bible is a story. Capturing that story. Men were created in the image of God. Women created in the image of God. We lost that image. We brought evil into the world in gross ways. God, you know, chose Israel, but there was no one, no king, nobody could be found that would just really walk with God with his life until Jesus. Jesus comes, he dies on the cross, and he says something. And here's what happens in America. In America, as preachers, we've told you, if you believe that Jesus is God and that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you accept him into your heart, then you're saved and you're going to heaven. And we call that salvation. That's all good news and everything, but could I tell you, if you do all that and you still have a life that's living in hell here on earth, that is still not what he come to do. That's not what salvation means. Salvation means, you know this old nature you have in you, and it's always causing you to go down a wrong street. It's always causing you to be a little bit more addictive than you want to be. It, something's always obsessing you. Your impulses are driving you. Something in your flesh, in your senses, that's what's motivating you in life. Jesus steps up and says, by my spirit, I can take that old heart out of you and I can put Jesus' heart in you. So here's what you'll want to spend your life doing. I want to be like Jesus and what I see the Father doing, I want to do that. I want to love like Jesus and I want to heal like Jesus and I want to confront evil like Jesus. All of a sudden, and say, well, I better, I better get through it. I better read the whole Bible so I get the story. Guys, I'm 20 to 30 years in looking at this story, and I'm still discovering the story of God. And when I see a little story, I realize that the little story, so the Bible has the big story, and has all these little stories, and all these little stories are just retelling the big story. And so what's happening, I'm learning the story of God. And as I learn the story of God, it makes my ears rich in being able to hear his voice.
Like, like, what do you hear? Like, that was not nice, what you said to your wife. She had it coming! If you know my wife, she never did. N no, she did not have it coming. Even if she did have it coming, that's not how we talk. How about the first five minutes of the offense? Can I get real? That's not how we talk. I'm going to offend some people in here. You know who the worst drivers in the universe are? People who drive Prius. <laughs> worst drivers in the universe, Jesus says. Because somebody, a Prius was pulling in front of me. Said, oh, here comes a Prius. We, we better jump up ahead of them because they're going to go the speed limit. We don't do that. We, Bill Schreiber taught this message about not getting ahead of the Holy Spirit. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit begins talking to you, and you begin to be thinking kind of the ways Jesus would want to think how to be more loving, how to be more kind, how to be more forgiving, how to do all that. So here it is. Just going to help with these things. It's very easy. To let you of the scripture is to let the Holy Spirit put you in the story. So all of a sudden, bang, I'm in the story. Doesn't matter what story it is. This morning I was in the story of Nicodemus. Sitting there, all of a sudden I'm sitting around and I'm looking in the story all around Nicodemus, and the Lord saying again, Jess, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, I was when I was five. Jess, come on, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. He started pushing on me today as I'm sitting there looking at Nicodemus, and all of a sudden I'm Nicodemus, and all of a sudden I'm playing. I don't know how to, I'm an old man, how can I be born again? All of a sudden Jesus said, I need you to think new thoughts. I need you to go deeper. I need you to press. And all of a sudden, I'm in the story. Whole thing, when you read the Bible, just, just talking to you. Read. Lectio. Read. Meditate. God, how can I be in this story with you? Show me who I am. Sometimes you're the elder brother. Sometimes you're the prodigal son. Sometimes you're the father. Sometimes, believe it or not, you're just the guy that God says, would you go kill the fatted calf and get it ready? There's all kinds of people in the story. All of a sudden, you get your, and you're seeing it from that perspective. And then, you let him put his story in you. Remember the story I told you earlier? And she's writing this thing, where were you, God? And all of a sudden, she's saying, you were here and here and here. You know what all that is? That's all her letting God now put his story in her how I train leaders, I go on long walks with them. Tell me your story, story, my friend, and so he does. He says, well, he says the story always goes like this. How did you end up here? In other words, how did we end up in a relationship? He says, well, pastor, I was sitting in your church a couple decades ago. A friend leaned over to me and said, let's go get some coffee. We went and got some coffee and decided there we weren't coming back to church and we were leaving Jesus a few years Later, moved in with a roommate, and he was wanting to have sex with his girlfriend, so I needed to leave, and so he left. He said, I left, and I went and got some coffee, and sitting there as I'm uh, having coffee, and this girl walks in, and I got to know her. He said, that night we decided, well, could we meet again? She, she says, well, yeah, maybe. I'm going to be gone town for a while. can't remember exactly how, what the length was, but... We can come back here and meet if you want to in a few weeks when I get back. And so they did. So then we started dating and said then we 
decided, I decided that I'd marry her. And so we went to a coffee shop and I asked her, would you marry me? And she said, yes. And I gave her a ring. And then we went to a restaurant one time. We were celebrating. And she went to the bathroom, took her ring, set it up on a counter, washed her hands, and left the ring there. And somebody stole the ring. He said, I went everywhere looking for that ring. Everywhere. And I could not find it. He said, I was away from God. Couldn't find that ring. So he said, I went, you know, like you do a kitten and, you know, nail it to a, to a uh, you know, phone po post. He telephone post. He said, I went and did that. He said, I know it was foolish, but he said, she was Buddhist. And this was not a good omen on our wedding. I had to find that ring and couldn't find it. He said, about a week later, somebody calls, ring. He said, I'd like to meet you and your fiance concerning your ring. He says, okay, let's, let's meet. So they end up at this coffee shop, and she's saying to him, I don't have your ring. But she says, I have a very expensive ring. Me and my fiance were going to get married, and we decided it was not God's will. I'm a Christian. We decided it was not God's will, and the Lord told me to give it to you guys. She says, they, they just start weeping, they're crying, they're just, you know, all over themselves, and their heads are down. He says, she whispers to us, she says, I'm a Christian, so I'm going to pray for you right now. So she prayed for him. She says, he says, they're just crying. We can't get the tears out of our eyes. Our heads are, are down. She says, when we looked up, she was gone. We ran outside to see if we could see her, could never find her. She says, I don't think it was an angel, but boy, it was strange. And it did have that sense that God sent her. A few weeks later, they meet at a coffee shop and decide, you know what, we need to start walking with Jesus. So I said to the young man, who are you? That's what I always ask guys. Because I want to say, well, I'm a pastor, I'm this, I'm that, I'm the other thing. That's not who you are. You are the sum total of the story of God that's within your heart. And most of you sitting in here, if you're my age, you probably could have 10 of these. I don't stand up here. I don't even feel very much like a pastor, but I've got 10 things. I said, who are you? And I said, you end it like this. I am the guy who God, fill in that blank. He said, well, uh, I'm the guy who God loves. Everybody can say that. Be more specific. I'm the guy who God has shown grace. He went through all kinds of things. I do this, guys, all the time. No, 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 no. Come up with something else. It's very specific. This is peculiar to you. God showed up in your life. He couldn't think of anything. I said, Tell me, because I have a feeling what your answer is going to be. Because remember, this is like a three-hour story, and he's coming back to this coffee shop. I said, where was the coffee shop that all these things happened? And his face went white. He said, it's the same coffee shop every time. Who are you? All my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. Has he? This kid was totally away from God, totally going his own way in complete rebellion. Who are you? Because the story of God is in you, and you've got to find it. The love of God is beyond what you could ever imagine. You've got to find it. You've got to discern it. You've got to let him dig ears in you until you can see his story in you. Yeah, he wants you to know his story, but only so he can find his story in you. It's resident in you all more than you know. I spent hours and hours and hours with guy, question after question. What about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? And all of a sudden it drops. I turned to him and I said, who are you? I tell the story because I love this answer better than any answer I've ever gotten. 
tears coming down his eyes. He's realizing, man, God was there for me when I didn't deserve him to be there for me. And then he blurts out. He says, I am the guy who got Starbucked. we read his word and we see him in his word, the Holy Spirit begins to speak back to us. One of the first things he wants to do is tell you who you are. Beyond being a pastor, a father, a son, or anything else. And I have my own words, about seven of them. I don't share them with hardly any people. But where God met me and told me, this is who you are against what your own mind and maybe what other people would think. This is who you are. He wants to get into your story with you. And he wants to tell you who you are. We could say it this way, the fourth way, is we need to be open to his metaphors because almost all of scripture is a metaphor. And so you've got to know like, you, you know, he's my rock. Well, we don't go sit down on a you know, piece of granite. That's not what he's saying there. And so in a metaphor, you know what he means and what he doesn't mean. And then lastly, and this is the big one, Lastly, is you let his story be preeminent above all stories that you have. So I start my day out pretty regular like this. Our Father in heaven. I don't say my, I say our, because I want to be aware I'm connected with other people. I'm, this is not about me. It's about his body. It's about him. Our Father in heaven, you're a good God. You're beyond me. You transcend me. And then here it comes. And some mornings I cry when I do this. I mean, this talk about his story. Hallowed be your name. Now, I know this. We don't have a good English word to translate that word hallowed. And so I'm saying, you your name is my ultimate worship. I pursue you above all else. Why I sometimes weep when I say that is because I cannot pursue him. I can't even want to pursue him unless his Holy Spirit is first in my heart to create that want. You're reading scripture. Read the story of Jesus. He wants to remake you to look like him. And don't believe the devil who says he cannot do it. You'll always be like who you are. There's a lot wrong in me, but I am completely different than the man I once was. I won't be perfect beside, uh, before the side of the grave, but I do know this. He's regenerating me piece by piece by piece by piece. Read his story. And let him talk to you about it. Put yourself in it. Let him get into your story. Ask him about the metaphors and how they work out in your life. And then let his story be the chief of all stories. And find your place somewhere in the Bible. Because I found my place somewhere in the Bible. I am the guy who God. I am the guy who God. I am the guy who God. This is weird. What Jesus did right here. I'm going to offend some in a minute, but hang on. Jesus takes a piece of bread on the night he was betrayed, and he says, 
This is my body. No, it's not. It's a piece of bread. It's a symbol for his body. It's not symbol. If his word said, this is my body, it's his body. Everyone wants to argue, then does it literally become the flesh of Jesus? Well, obviously not. We don't know the mystery of how it's his body, but he declares, this is my body. This is very important that you know and you commit your life to this. Why? Because at every place you think your life is being destroyed, at the very place where maybe you're holding the gun and getting ready to take your life, Jesus can step in and say, this is my body. This is the place of your death, but it's the place where I'm going to bring resurrection. Piece of bread. And he says, this is my body given for you. I did this for you. Takes this thanks offering in the Jewish feast and he said, this is yours. Here's the offensive thing. We do this in, in our church. People are kind of used to it now, but it, it was the first time was shocking when we did it. You ready? Behold. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And you say, all I see is bread. And I say this, that when we this morning say, this is his body given for us, I declare to you that the crucified Jesus from 2,000 years ago is present in this room right now. And the resurrected Jesus who's seated on his throne by the Holy Spirit is present in this room right now. This does, I get it, does not become transcendent. I get all that. I am saying, when we hold this up and we're saying, behold the Lamb of God, everybody is supposed to be saying, I don't know about any other time in the service, but I know this. He is here right now. If the crucified Jesus is here right now, here's the crucified Jesus. I'm giving my life to you. I'm giving my life to you right now for my sins, it, for your sins. It is still active, and my, I am nailed to that cross and that sins eternally, meaning my arms are open to you eternally. Come unto me. I will forgive your sins. I will remake you. I will make a brand new person out of you. He is in this room right now to that. So when we say, behold the Lamb of God, what we're saying is, the very fidelity that Jesus had towards his Father and towards us is present in this room. So it's like to our brother, he would be saying this, if, if we could communicate it this way. I am present. The death of me on the cross is present right here, and the very commitment I had to the Father and I, had, I have to you, I give you right now. This is what they were doing when they're taking communion. I give that commitment to you. You know how we respond? Jesus, I receive your fidelity.